Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke, and today I'm joined by Richard Conniff, journalist and author of House of Lost Worlds, Dinosaurs, Dynasties, and the Story of Life on Earth. Richard, thank you for joining me today. Good to be here. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about uh, museums today and the stories behind their collections, specifically the Peabody here at Yale. So I'm going to start off. When you go to a museum, uh, where do you head first? Well, if I go to the Peabody, I head to the, <laughs> I head to the Great Hall of Dinosaurs. But it turned out that that, that, that was sort of my downfall in, in visiting the Peabody for many years because I, I've been visiting it for almost 40 years. And, um, and I would go to the dinosaurs, and the dinosaurs are kind of uh, – uh, they're so awesome uh, that you get distracted from anything else. And it turns out uh, when I started to research the book that the better stories – or equally good stories anyway, are often the sides in species that get a lot less attention from a casual uh, uh, visitor. So uh, what particular species jumps out as being uh, interesting, aside from those, you know, monumental dinosaurs? Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, the thing that that, that I guess was was my initial problem with the book and the idea of the book was that I didn't think one museum would give me a narrative arc. That is, I wouldn't be able to find a story that would somehow carry all the way through the book. But it turned out uh, right from the start that there was exactly the story that I needed. Um, and it, it's, it's about the connection between the dinosaurs and birds. And that ran from the beginning of the Peabody's history right up to the present day. And um, so in particular, in that great hall of dinosaurs, off to the right in a cabinet that's somewhat dated in, in its display, there, is, um, there are a couple of birds with teeth, Ichthyornis and Hesperornis. And O.C. Marsh, who was more famous for the dinosaurs, he's a paleontologist in the 19th century, one of the, one of the best paleontologists, um, he uh, was leading these expeditions in the, from about 1870 to 1874. Um, he would take out Yale students and Yale graduates um, into the American West and you have to understand that the American West then was still a very dangerous place to be, um, and Native Americans didn't particularly want these intruders there, any kind of intruders. Um, they, they, you know, they didn't really know what to make of O.C. Marsh and his students who were nose down in the dirt, scratching at apparently worthless things. But, but among the worthless things they scratched up were these, these, these fossils that um, Marsh actually mistook one of them at first for a, a reptile, a lizard-like creature, because of its of its of its um, teeth and because of its facial configuration, and he he actually published a scientific description based on the half excavated uh, fossil, and he called it a, a reptile. And then they started going further down into the rock and getting at what was really there, and it turned out to be a bird and a bird with teeth, a, a bird that that was uh, aquatic and that apparently needed those teeth to dive down and grasp fish. And, and, and um, so he, he discovered that, and he discovered another one soon after. Um, and he, he devoted much of the next 10 years to the study of these birds with teeth. And he wrote about the connection between dinosaurs and, and uh, bird-like uh, dinosaurs and, and reptile-like birds, I think is, he, he phrased it something like that. Um, and he wrote about it back then. And so that theory that that uh, birds and, and dinosaurs were connected was out there, um, 
but it then gradually faded away and became kind of a, a silly old idea. And for much of the 20th century, people thought it was a silly old idea. So what happened to that idea? I mean, nowadays, I think it's a little more widely recognized. You know, you see dinosaurs with feathers. And even 10, 15 years ago, the movie Jurassic Park was out not that long ago. Um, and there were no velociraptors with feathers, although now we know that that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah. Uh, so if that theory was out there for a while, which it sounds like, and I didn't know that, what happened? Like, why didn't it gain traction or what made it come back into the forefront? Well, so it lost traction basically because of one particular book. I can't recall the name of the author right now, but it was considered the definitive work. And he, he was talking about how uh, certain bones were missing and, and th- that demonstrated a lack of connection between dinosaurs and birds. So that seemed to disprove it and, um, and the idea faded away. And then it stayed faded away until the 1970s. Uh, in in that sort of mid twentieth century period, first there was a, this this um, paleontologist from the Peabody Museum named John Ostrom, and um, he was working around Montana, closing up a season in 1964, and he and, a, and an assistant were were sort of casing the area and looking for where they might work the next season, and they were standing on this hillside and they looked down and they saw a claw sticking out of the ground a big claw, like five inches, and um, curved and pretty ferocious. And so they got down there and started scrambling around and digging like crazy. And they went back to that spot in that area for the next uh, two or three years, gathering uh, more and more of these bones. And they had gradually developed enough to describe the species that became Deinonychus, um, which means terrible claw. Um, and... Um, That's the first part of the story. That was a pretty spectacular thing by itself because it demonstrated, as he studied it over the next few years, that dinosaurs weren't these plodding, stupid, swamp-bound creatures that that we'd always thought they were. I mean, in the 1950s, a lot of people thought dinosaurs, a lot of paleontologists thought dinosaurs were too boring to study because they were such a dead end in evolution. So, But as he looked at Deinonychus, as Ostrom looked at Deinonychus, he realized that these creatures had to be fast, they had to be agile, you know, they could almost be smart. And he, and he presented this idea to American paleontologists, North American paleontologists, at a big convention in 1968 or 69. And when he said basically that dinosaurs could have the same metabolism as many mammals, um, the people in the audience gasped in horror because it was such a a heretical idea. Um, So that was out there, and that began the modern dinosaur renaissance. But the second thing that happened happened in about 1970. Ostrom was in the Netherlands, and he was looking at a a museum collection there and looking at what was supposed to be a pterosaur, that is, like a pterodactyl. Um, And he, he... picked up the two halves of this fossil, the stone, and he studied them, you know, and he went over to the window and he looked at it and, and turned it in the light, and he realized that very clearly there were feathers in this stone and that it wasn't a pterosaur at all. It was an Archaeopteryx. And there were only at that point three Archaeopteryx fossils known in the world. So it was suddenly a huge deal. And he needed to take it home to New Haven to study it in detail. Um, because there were other things that he was seeing. Um, but the problem was that 
if he just told the museum director that it was a pterosaur, that'd be no problem. Take it away, you know, bring it back in three years, whatever. But if he told him that it was an Archaeopteryx and only the fourth Archaeopteryx known in the world, then that might be it. He might want to keep this precious thing close. And uh, so he was debating having this sort of um, crisis of conscience there, what to do. And because he was, as a student described him, a squeaking honest man, he confessed to the director of the museum that it was, in fact, an Archaeopteryx. And the director snatched it away from him and went out of the room with it. And, and Ostrom is sitting there by himself now in despair at what has just escaped his grasp. Uh, but a few minutes later, the director came back with a shoebox tied in string, and he handed it to him, and he said, you have made our museum famous. But he had no clue. I mean, that was only the beginning, because Ostrom took that back to New Haven, and he studied it. And, you know, when these guys are looking at these fossils, you and I would see nothing, but they look at incredible details, at minute features, and they see all kinds of things. So he went back, and he looked at it, and he looked at it, and he really found... He couldn't avoid finding he, 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 that there were connections between Archaeopteryx and the dinosaur that he had found, Deinonychus. They had a lot of very similar structures. And so he began to develop this idea that, that dinosaurs and birds were connected. And more than that, that, that birds are the only uh, dinosaurs to survive the great extinction of 66 million years ago. And that was a second heresy. Uh, but both his, his ideas, uh, the one with Deinonychus and then the connection to birds, are now, um, they're now accepted by almost everybody except for a few holdouts, throwbacks even. Um, and, um, and he lived long enough uh, to see the first dinosaur with feathers uh, that came back from China. Um, and, and people who witnessed that scene where somebody showed him a photograph of it said he had tears in his eyes because it was, you know, it was the fulfillment of his life's work. Um, and, and, and there's one other thing about all this that's kind of interesting. Um, so other people have found lots of dinosaurs with feathers, and, and it's, you, you see them dressed up like uh, New Orleans Mardi Gras Indians now. They're so colorful and, 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 and uh, so different from what we used to think. So he wrote about all this, and he wrote about them being fast and agile, about dinosaurs being fast and agile. And this science fiction writer, Michael Crichton, um, <laughs> uh, who was a very successful novelist, came to him and interviewed him about all of this and interviewed him about Deinonychus. And he wrote his novel, Jurassic Park. But he later, uh, before it was published, contacted Ostrom again and said, look, you know, it's, I'm changing the name to Velociraptor, which is a sister group to the um, uh, Deinonychus just because it, it's a sexier sounding name. So, um, so, so Ostrom not only kind of fulfilled that connection between birds and dinosaurs that Marsh had been playing around with, but he also, and he began the dinosaur renaissance, and he created this whole thing that we now think of as this Jurassic Park enterprise <laughs> mega mega enterprise um so so it's it's pretty great stuff and it's pretty great stuff to have had that all happen at one museum so i was i was really very happy when i when i got into this story and started writing about that yeah i mean it's it's interesting because you know as a kid reading books about dinosaurs like many many kids do um you know they were always 
brontosaurus sitting in the water, you know, too big and bulky to move. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I read Jurassic Park when I was younger. And uh, that sort of, for me, that was a new idea of dinosaur, which is funny that something fiction uh, would be that uh, would be that sort of catalyst. Um, and then, of course, the movie didn't get it right anyway, obviously, when the movie came out. And neither did the book. I had many factual inaccuracies. But um, I wonder, what is it about dinosaurs that you know, that captivates us so much. I mean, they're they're everywhere. People love them. I think even in the book, Jurassic Park, if I'm remembering right, it's been a while since I read it, uh, Dr. Grant makes a sort of hypothesis as to them being, you know, the authority figure and kids are fascinated by dinosaurs. Obviously, that's Michael Crichton's take on it. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you think. What is it that people, you know, that captures our imaginations I think they they capture our imaginations for a number of reasons, but but uh, I mean the big one is literally the big one. They are huge and they make us seem trivial in a way. Um, and and then the second idea uh, that I think is pretty important about them is they were, as we thought for much of the time when I was growing up, they were completely obliterated. They went nowhere. And 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 you know that's got this Ozymandias quality to it that that um, that uh, that any great monument and any species can just vanish and uh, that's a very disturbing idea, and so when you're sitting there looking at standing there looking at a, a dinosaur, there are a lot of complicated feelings that are going through their head your head, plus you know they're they're scary and they can eat you <laughs> <laughs> or step some, on you some of them yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny to me now. Uh, you sort of, you know, they were all they were all dead, and now you you that's not the case. They've evolved in, into birds and in, in many of the species, and so now uh, we have some friends who ha- who raise chickens in their backyard, which is, seems to be a trend these days. And it's funny that it it I don't know if it loses its luster or it makes it more interesting that I can take my daughter to the backyard and say, there's what dinosaurs became. Yeah. Um, laying eggs in, <laughs> in downtown New Haven, yeah. essentially. Yeah, it, it certainly is weird. And I look at them when they show up at the theater a lot differently now. <laughs> and and we, have, um, we have wild turkeys uh, often around where I live. And, um, you know, yeah, they, they, I, I think about all of this stuff now and, and reflect on these connections that go back past that 66 million year barrier. Um, so, I, you know, John Ostrom just opened up our eyes to amazing things about our world that, you know, we, we never expected. I, I'd like to tell you one other thing about sure. Ostrom because this is a story that I heard from the Peabody and Dan Brinkman, who is a paleontologist there, was um, Ostrom's last student in the 1990s, and he heard this story from Ostrom, but he didn't want to tell it uh, to me, or rather he didn't want me to put it in print, and I sort of had to badger him a while, and then he finally relented and agreed to let me do it. But when 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 Ostrom got that archaeopteryx specimen from the museum in the box, he headed back to his hotel, and he had to stop on the way to go to the bathroom. And as he was leaving, walking away, he was thinking, no doubt, of all of these connections and, and the things that he was dimly sensing, sensing at that point. And uh, suddenly he realized that he was empty-handed. And he raced back to this public toilet and found the box with the Archaeopteryx sitting on a sink, 
completely abandoned and, you know, grabbed it and clutched it to his chest and ran back to his hotel and held on to it till he got to New Haven. And, and you know, basically that's what saved the future for dinosaurs, that, that little remembering <laughs> at the last minute. Amazing to think that something could have sat there for so long in the ground and then been lost in a bathroom somewhere yes, <laughs> and yes. changed the course of history. Yes. What a, good Lord. <laughs> um, so... Speaking more broadly than about museums, um, what do you think the museum's role is uh, in in today's modern society? I mean, obviously people still go to museums. I go to museums often. Um, but what role do you think uh, they play in, in today's society? Well, so I, I think they play a big role because these things, I mean, all the stuff that we've been talking about with O.C. Marsh and John Ostrom, um, just those two changed our view of the world. I mean, before O.C. Marsh in the 1870s, 1880s, we didn't know about these huge dinosaurs. That was completely new. And then to have this other thing that John Ostrom uh, achieved in the, in the 1970s, well, those are big deals. Those and but and that's sort of only the the the, the bare uh, tip of the iceberg because, you know, if you want to know about climate change, you have to go look at species and how they've changed over the last hundred or three hundred years. And where do you go find those specimens that are still around? You go to natural history museums. Um, and um, if you want to know about species extinction, if you want to know about invasions, if you want to know that species you think are one species are really six, I mean, like with giraffes, that's happened. Um, with elephants, they, you know, they used to think African elephants were one species until fairly recently. Now it's two. So the biggest land animal on earth, and we didn't understand it. Uh, and, and typically the evidence for those kinds of discoveries comes from natural history museums. So people don't get that. I don't think natural history museums do a very good job of selling that story. Um, and um, I think that's unfortunate because philanthropists in particular need to realize how important this is. Government agencies need to realize how important it is. So the NSF, the National Science Foundation, re recently, uh, last month or two, decided it was going to suspend funding to natural history museums um, for a year-long review well, that's some of the most uh, essential funding for the collection and preservation of species in this country. And for them to, not, not even to walk away, but to just shut it down for a year, puts all kind of research on hold and puts specimen collections in peril. And, you know, then you've got a museum in Illinois, a state museum, Natural History Museum, which has a great collection of mammoths. It's been shut down by a Republican governor in a fight over the state budget shut down after 138 years because the governor says it's going to save $4 million and doesn't pay attention to the fact that it generates $38 million a year in, in, in spinoff revenue. Um, so there's a lot of short-sighted stuff going on. And philanthropists, you know, philanthropists think if they donate money to an art museum, that's got, that's cool, that's got class. And they don't really appreciate that um, there's this other equally important thing going on that 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 is neglected and therefore where they can have an even bigger impact so aside from visiting the museums what what can you know the average museum goer do to help that cause to help make sure that museums keep their place uh in this you know in this society and, and keep that research going well uh, read my book <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, but yeah, that's a hard thing to say. I don't I don't know. You can write your Congress people and um, and to, you can write the National Science Foundation right now and tell them, you know, get on the ball. This is this is some of the most important work you do. Um, and uh, that that kind of stuff is important. But then also, you know, if they see something exciting at a at a museum, tweet it, talk about it, put it up on Facebook, take pictures, uh, make connections that help other people see how important this stuff is. Okay. Um, so, as maybe a lighter question, um, you know, I sometimes find myself uh, at museums, and I actually do tend towards uh, natural history museums. Uh, when I lived in New York, I would go to the, you know, the natural history museum often. Um, you often see uh, things on display, and they have these explanations. And as a lay person, you wonder, how oh, how do they know this? For example, you see, you know, a decorative bowl, and it has animals on it and the animals are symbolic and I often joke sometimes well maybe that person just really liked dogs um you know I often wonder though as I'm doing this what sort of items do you think you know well and this is completely hypothetical but what sort of items do you think might end up in a museum one day that you and I look at as completely normal and people are going to puzzle over them like what could this have been for you know, there are lots of things in my own life that I've seen change dramatically. It's kind of weird uh, to, to to go back. Um, so I was born in the 1950s, and since then there are things like uh, smoke, cigarette, cigarette smoking and, um, and, and, and ashtrays everywhere. <laughs> I have an ashtray on a, on a sort of bellboy kind of be, holding it up like this. Well, that's... That's almost a museum piece. It's a little <laughs> junky for that purpose, really. But um, today's but, junk might be tomorrow's, you know, treasure. Yeah, though. yeah. And then there's just lots of other things that are, you know, some good, some bad. But um, oh, I mean, the 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 weight change in Americans for the bad has been pretty spectacular over the last thirty years, let's say. And um, you know, the things that that are impl- complicit in that, uh, they'd make interesting museum displays. <laughs> The ads, the for the products, and so on. So yeah, there's lots going on. And in natural history, well, there are species that are now um, on the brink of extinction, and the only place we'll be able to see them again is in zoo- is in zoos or in natural history museums. Yeah, I know it. It's sort of an unfortunate foreshadowing, almost that you know you hear it with rhinos and things like that eventually that's that's going to be the place you have to see them yeah and you can't even see rhinos in museums uh, because they cut off the uh, thieves will come in and cut off the horns because they're so valuable for idiotic um uh, uh, medical treatments that you know are they have no no scientific value whatsoever so yeah it's it's um it's it's awkward and difficult and disappointing one thing that's a good trend, um, when I was writing this book and when I was writing my last book uh, called The Species Seekers, um, they, they were mostly 19th century to, um, well, this one runs up to, it actually runs up to into this century, but most of it's up to the mid-20th century. And as you go through this, you notice, geez, there aren't any women doing this research. And, um, and uh, y- you get a sense of how uh, vehemently, they were prevented from doing this research, and and there's this one woman that I ran across uh, in the history of the Peabody named Grace Pickford, and she was married to G. Evelyn Hutchison, who was the founder of 
of ecology, of modern ecology, and who taught at Yale. And so because she was married to him, she got a job at Yale as a sort of low-level researcher affiliated with the Peabody Museum or with a, 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 an aquatic branch of the Peabody that was then in existence. But um, she, never, she never was teaching here. She taught at Albertus Magnus. And, um, and she, when she was here, she never got promoted in the proper fashion. She was only, uh, she, she had an NSF grant for that whole period, but she was only promoted to professor in, I think, 1968, which was the year before she retired. And, and, it, and it was more poignant then, too, because it was during a time when molecular biologists were trying to purge organismal biologists from the faculty. They didn't want natural history because that was just so dead and dated. And so she was promoted, uh, uh, but she was given an ultimatum that she had to either uh, teach uh, or retire. And so she taught. She taught introductory biology. And she taught it to a class, I think just about the last class at Yale that was not co-ed. So she had all these male students there, and um, and a lot of them were these kind of, uh, prep school may not be the fair description, but there were kids who, um, you know, if you didn't quite fit what they wanted, then they'd let you know it. And, and um, she was, um, she didn't conform to sort of uh, feminine stereotypes. I mean, she wore a jacket and tie, that sort of thing. And so she was being snickered at and joked about in the back of the classroom. And... Um, and when she, she did eventually retire the next year, she didn't really, she took her NSF grant with her and she went to a small college in Ohio. And, and um, well, so I, I said this was positive, didn't I? The positive <laughs> thing is that women are now all over the place in natural history and in natural history museums. And um, I think that's a great change for the better. All right. Well, Richard, thank you very much for joining me today. You bet. Thank you so much. The book is House of Lost Worlds, Dinosaurs, Dynasties, and the Story of Life on Earth. It's available in bookstores now. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. Talk to you next time.